Our first scripture lesson this morning comes from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8. Moses said these words to the people. This entire commandment that I command you today, you must diligently observe, so that you may live and increase, and go in and occupy the land that the Lord has promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember the long way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, for which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The clothes on your back did not wear out, and your feet did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a parent disciplines a child, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Therefore keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with flowing streams, with springs and underground waters welling up in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of fig vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land where you may eat bread without scarcity, where you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and from whose hills you may mine copper. You shall eat your fill and bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Take care that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. When you have eaten your fill and have built fine houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks have multiplied and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then do not exalt yourself, forgetting the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness and arid wasteland with poisonous snakes and scorpions. He made water for you from flint rock and fed you in the wilderness with manna that your ancestors did not know to humble you and to test you, and in the end to do you good. Do not say to yourself, my power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth so that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your ancestors as he is doing today. If you do forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord is destroying before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And a second lesson from the New Testament letter to Timothy. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, 
but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Come Holy Spirit, settle in on our hearts and our minds. Open a space to teach us this morning. Plant a seed of generosity in us now. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So we've been talking about living on purpose, and this morning's topic is giving on purpose. So I want to think pretty specifically about money this morning. What is it? What does it mean in our lives? And to do that, I I read a very interesting piece this week. It was written by a, a young man named Chompy, and he grew up with the Achuar people in the Brazilian rainforest. He and his tribe were one of those uh, secluded pockets of the Amazon that did not have contact with the modern world until the 1970s. And shortly after the 1970s, some oil reserves were discovered on his people's land, so they started to have much more contact with the outside world, as you might imagine. So Chompy was one of the brightest young men in his village, And he came in the 1990s to America to go to school and to prepare his people for all the interactions that they were going to have with the oil companies and others who were coming onto their land. And he describes that when he first came to America, he had his first contact with money. Coming to America was the the first time he had held any money. And it also meant it was the first time he'd even bumped into the concept of money. See, where he grew up, if you were hungry, you went and made some breakfast. If you were thirsty, you went down to the river and took a drink. If you needed anything, you could borrow it from your neighbors, who were also members of your extended family. They had no money and no need for money in his small village. But Chompy says that he realized that money commoditizes everything. When he came to America, he realized you can put a number on anything, right? The cost of your breakfast, uh, the rent that you pay for the roof over your head, the electricity that you've used, even the water coming out of your faucet. It all has a dollar value now, right? And even the cost of an hour of your time, you can put a dollar figure on that too, right? He said that every relationship and every action we take could be connected back to money. Isn't that true, right? And if it is, then you and I had better learn how to control it before it takes control of us. Or as Paul writes to Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds 
of evil. I'm going to make the assumption this morning that if you, you came to church and you know the topic was going to be growing in generosity, then that's a, a goal that you and I would both share as Christians, right? Wouldn't everybody like to be more generous? Well, I did some research this week, and there's a survey of generosity that they do nationally each year. And last year, 44.8% of Americans gave $0 to charity. That's like 4 in 10, right? And another 41% gave less than 2% of their income annually away. So as a whole, Americans are not a terribly generous people. But you might be thinking, well, at least people are willing to give their time and volunteer, right? And, and lots of people do volunteer, but in that same survey, they ask a question about volunteer hours. And three out of four people reported volunteering for zero hours in the prior year. So what are the forces that keep us from being the generous people that we would like to be? Paul names things like greed and the fear of scarcity. But these two things, greed and scarcity, they're not natural, but they're learned patterns. We were taught them at a very young age, and we grow up believing in them. There are a lot of myths that we've been taught and, and live out. One myth is that bigger is better. If you want to see this myth played out, all you have to do is watch a little bit of HGTV, right? Brookie had a show on the other day, and of course they're remodeling some house. And the husband had only one request for the newly remodeled space. He wanted a bigger TV, right? As if that was going to be the centerpiece of the designer's new design for the home. And his wife, she didn't want to be able to see the TV at all. So you can imagine how this is going to play out, right? Well, the designer comes to the moment of the big reveal, and she walks over to the wall and says, look at this, and she opens some cabinet doors, and there was this enormous TV, right, in the newly remodeled space. And she was so excited to show it to the husband, and he was beaming with the thought of this giant TV. And then she said, wait, there's more. And she reached up above the giant TV and opened two other sets of doors for a second and a third TV hanging on their living room wall. And everybody was going, ooh, ah, wow, like three TVs. And I was thinking, is this guy going to be running a mission to Mars out of his living room or something? Because why in the world would you need three TV screens? But we have this idea that more and bigger is better, right? And we learn that at a very young age. And that's kind of disturbing to me as a parent. When I think about Paul instructing Timothy, I think about my own kids. And here's the dilemma in our house right now. We have a new resident down in Clark's room. This is Joey the gerbil. And Joey is very well loved by Clark. And Clark has some disposable income due to a lot of grandparents and birthday money, right? So first we got Joey a cage. Then, we added on the fun part, 
with the wheel and some climbing ramps. And then we made another trip back to the pet store and we added on the travel cage, which connects by a tube. And after we got the tubes, we realized how much fun the tubes were. We had to go back and get the little lookout for up top. Right? Now here's my question, and this is honest. Where's the line drawn between being generous toward our new furry friend, Joey, and being acquisitive? And, and how much better is Joey's life really going to be with more square footage, right? Because if I ask that question now about a gerbil cage, right, maybe Clark will think about that as he's growing up and makes other decisions too. So we had a long conversation about what might make Joey's life better. How, how could we continue to bless this little gerbil that's so exciting and a part of our family now? And you know what? Clark came up with a pretty good solution. Maybe we should build him a spaceship, right? <laughs> Out of a macaroni box for the windshield and some Kleenex and some paper towel tubes. And Joey loves flying around in his spaceship, right? When we read the Bible and we read about blessings, we read about them as something that flows. The Bible uses language like, my cup runs over, or pour out your spirit. The language of blessing in the Bible is often language about water. And water to people who live in the desert is a very precious resource. And it talks about the flow of blessings, right? as though blessings and generosity is something that has emotion to it. You know, Jesus told a parable at one point to the crowds about a man who had so many possessions that he built a new barn to hold all of the grain that he was taking in. And after that barn was full, he built another and another and another to hold all of his stuff. And then as the parable goes on, you know what happens to the man? He dies one night in his sleep. And Jesus makes the point that you can acquire all you want, but you can't take it with you. Or can you? Here's a story I ran across this week about a Stradivarius violin. This is one that's uh, sitting in the Smithsonian. It's not the actual violin. But you know the name Stradivarius, right? They are the finest instruments in the world. They are 300 plus years old and they sell for millions and millions of dollars each time that one changes hands. But the story I heard this week was about the violin owned by Amy Chen, a violinist. She took it in for some service and found that it was particularly well preserved. The technician that was working on it said, wow, this violin is 300 years old, but you still have all of the original varnish on it. It's, it's immaculate. Well, Amy started doing a little bit of research. She found out that one of the prior owners of that violin had it buried in his coffin with him. The violin had been buried with this man in his family's crypt for over 200 years. So it was still in pretty nice shape, right? I had two thoughts when I heard this story. The first one was, you, right? You've been playing that violin and didn't know its history. 
And the second was, how did it get out of the tomb and go back up for sale? But it's an interesting story, right? Do we want to be buried with our possessions? Or do we want to find a way to be generous and use them to bless others? Stradivarius violins are actually an excellent example of stewardship. Most of these super expensive violins are not owned by the musicians who play them. See, bright young musicians in conservatories all around the country that have the skills to play a Stradivarius violin often do not have the cash that it would take to own one. So most of the Stradivarius violins in the world are sponsored by a patron who, who pays the multi-millions of dollars but then gifts the instrument to a young musician in order that they would have one to play. One theme I'm finding about generosity is that it requires some forethought and some planning. Moses is very worried when the Israelites are about to go into the promised land. He gives that long speech about how they're about to receive all the material blessings of this wonderful new home. And he knew they needed a plan for how to handle themselves. I ran across a very similar quote by uh, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. Here's what he said about the early Methodist people. I fear wherever riches have increased, the essence of religion, the mind that was in Christ, has decreased in the same proportion. Therefore, I do not see how it is possible in the nature of things for any revival of true religion to continue long. For religion must necessarily produce both industry and frugality. And these cannot but produce riches. But as riches increase, so will pride and anger and love of the world in all its branches. John Wesley was worried that as people followed Christ, they'd become more industrious and more frugal, but then they'd build up wealth and it would be to their detriment. He was constantly asking questions of how we could live a balanced life, providing well for our families, but also continuing to be generous to those in need. That's why we need a theology of budgeting. Do you ever think about your, your theology of your budget? If you want to be generous, it requires some planning. If you want to be generous, it requires some sacrifice and some action on our part. Giving is something we practice. So growing in generosity is a path we can choose to take. And growing in generosity is a key that opens many other doors, many other ways that we can grow in Christ. To grow in our generosity financially also is to grow in grace. It teaches us to grow in forgiveness, to grow in patience. Think about the most generous people you know in your life. I bet they're not only generous with their checkbook, right? But generous people are also generous with their time, with their attention, with their love. 
To be generous opens up all the ways that we can share God's blessing with others. I was thinking about what makes generosity joyful and what makes it fun. And I I was reading a Christian blogger who talked about she and her husband and their philosophy of giving. His philosophy was to be regular and disciplined in the giving. And so he thought that each month they should write a check out to the the church and the charities that they had decided to support, and he paid it almost like a utility bill, right? Every month, wrote his check. And she said that that took all of the joy out of it for her. So instead, she decided that she would keep her giving in a separate account and just kind of let it accumulate. And here's what she wrote. Whenever there is a need, I can respond immediately, generously, and joyfully. Two very different plans leading toward the same result, to to grow in generosity. If we're really going to do this well, to grow in generosity, then it's going to take focus and simplicity. I want to tell you a story now about the 1927 Ortig Prize. It was funded by hotel magnate Raymond Ortig, and he offered a $25,000 reward for the first pilot who could take a plane from New York to Paris, the first transatlantic flight. Much like the SpaceX prize was a few years ago for us, this was money to seed the aviation industry. And all the heavy hitters came out. This picture here is millionaire Charles Levine. He had a plane called the Columbia, and it was widely figured to be the one that would win the prize. But Charles Levine was not worried so much about his airplane crossing the Atlantic. He was worried more about the publicity. He wanted to become famous through his efforts. So Charles hired two different pilots, and he interviewed them not only on their flying skills, but he wanted someone who was going to look good in the photographs and the newsreels, because he knew that whoever crossed the Atlantic first was going to become famous. And he hired two pilots so that he could have kind of a publicity stunt. They both trained for the trip. And on the day of the flight, the plan was to have them on the tarmac where he would flip a coin and choose one of the two pilots who would then climb into the plane and fly across the Atlantic. Sounds like a a great idea, right? On the morning, when the Columbia was fueled up and ready to go, The two pilots were so fed up with their millionaire boss that they both walked off the job together. And that plane did not make it off the ground. Another contender was World War I flying ace, Rene Funk. And Rene designed an elaborate plane to cross the Atlantic. He decided that they would have a four-man crew, two pilots and two navigators, so that they could switch off and take shifts from flying the plane. And he decided that when they were taking time off, it would be nice to have some nice seating in the plane. So he had couches and end tables installed, and the couch was a pullout so they could make it into a bed and take a nap. You can imagine 
that Renee's plane started to get kind of heavy, right? He was adding more and more things. Uh, he took a case of champagne with him on the plane so that when they landed in Paris, they could pop those bottles immediately. When they were ready to leave, they had a hot meal delivered so that Renee could eat uh, a nice meal as they were crossing the Atlantic. They had delivered to them clam chowder, crab legs, duck, and turkey. And the plane that was originally designed to be 20,000 pounds ended up being 28,000 pounds. They actually had to add an extra wheel to the back of the plane so that it would be stable on the runway. And you might imagine what happens when you make a plane 8,000 pounds too heavy. They started off on the runway and went as fast as they could, but just didn't get any lift. And actually crashed the plane at the end of the runway, and two of those four uh, navigators died in a fire. So now do you remember who won this original race? Charles Lindbergh, right? What was Lindbergh's plan? He decided he would be both the pilot and the navigator to save weight. In fact, he did everything he could to strip all of the weight off of his plane. It was made of aluminum to be as light as possible. Notice one thing that it doesn't have is a front windshield. He just stuck his head out the side when he needed to see what was going on in front of the plane. He decided that if he crashed, there wouldn't be anyone to come and rescue him anyway, so he didn't take a life raft or a parachute at all. He only had one engine to conserve fuel. He was as lean and as mean as he could be. And you know, of course, that he won that $25,000 prize and made it across from New York to Paris in 33 and a half hours. Generosity requires this level of planning and intentionality in our lives. If we want to be generous, we have to live simply. Draw that line between needs and wants in our lives and make a plan to be generous people. I saw this lived out in the life of one of my church members at my first church. His name was Al Bailey, and he was having his 80th birthday party when I came to my church that first week in July. And Al had been widowed. At a very unfortunate point in his life, the year that he retired, his wife Marion died of cancer. And I imagine that had to be a tough turning point, right? What, what is the point of life now? The love of his life had died, and they had all their plans to travel together, all their plans to enjoy the golden years were wrecked. And Al realized that after a long career at IBM, he was retiring with a nice executive's pension, a stock portfolio, and now some life insurance money on top of that. And Al realized with all of these resources at his disposal that he had a unique opportunity. And he decided at that point not to travel the world or to live a lavish lifestyle, but he decided to downsize. He sold their home, 
and moved into a small apartment that was attached to his daughter's house uh, to watch his grandchildren and great-grandchildren grow up. And he did it all with an eye toward generosity. He would come joyfully into my office and tell me how he had simplified this or cut expenses there, all with the goal of having more to give away. And Al was incredibly generous, incredibly generous to our church, paid for every kid that wanted to go to summer camp. He sponsored many children overseas in different foreign countries. And Al gave generously and joyfully to a bunch of different causes. After losing his wife, Marion, what could have pulled him into a, a dark and depressed place, instead, he took the steps to be generous, to live generously. And God's way of blessing Al came as Al blessed others with the material resources he had been given. So what would it look like for you to live generously this week, to count your blessings, take an inventory, and find a place where you could stretch just a little bit, to be generous with what God has given to you. May God bless us as we seek to bless others. Amen.